So we are here for First Samuel and then Second Samuel, and these are, uh, in my estimation, the most enjoyable and interesting stories in all the Bible. They're just so well written. There are so many of them. As you make your way through the stories of, of Samuel and then Saul and then especially David, um, you know, the one from whom the Messiah, when the one from whose line the Messiah would come. So it's really just a wonderful journey, and I've never been able to do it like this when I had a screen behind me in which I could have maps and photos and all kinds of things. So I, I do now, thanks to our AV department, our media team, and I'm planning on using them. So I'm glad all of you are here. I think what I would like to do, Ralph's going to start around the red box in a bit, but that is, is a way for you to f keep up with what's going on. So the main thing is to be on the roster, roster for this class. So if something happens and we can't meet, I would use um, email to let you know that. And it'll put you on. You'll get all the Friday updates and everything else from me. So if, if you're not on that roster for the Tuesday class, you might as well decide, decide right now that you're coming back and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and put, your, put your name and email address on there somewhere and Connie will get it added to it. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. What a wonderful start to this new year. So many people at St. Andrew committed to, to studying scripture, just just studying scripture so that we might be shaped and renewed and, and you know, we live in a culture and a time when everybody wants shortcuts to everything. And um, there are no shortcuts here. This is how we do it. We study scripture, we pray, we worship, we live our lives together, um, we encourage one another, and we are grateful that we are here to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So, okay, so first of all, this is the only class I teach like this now. I used to teach Monday night this way, but I had to give that up. So, and I, I do it streaming only, which just can't be the same. So on Tuesdays, this is a great opportunity to come with questions. I got a question before class. It had nothing to do with Samuel. It doesn't matter. This is the place, if you, if you have questions that you hear about in the sermon or elsewhere, this is the place we can bring them and talk to things, talk about things. So we're not on a schedule. I don't know when we will finish the book of 2 Samuel. It'll probably be 2023, <laughs> I'm guessing. But I don't know what, I'm not in any hurry. It, it's, all, it's all good. So, so don't be shy. You know, my old thing is if, you, if, you, if the question's in your mind, in a room this size, it's, in, it's on the minds of five other people at the same time. Uh, so really, don't, don't be shy about that. So we're here today. Okay, I guess I should say, do you want to ask me anything before we get started with that little intro? See, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get warmed up. It'll be okay. You'll get to know people. <laughs> you know, the room is so full, everybody's in new seats. <laughs> Confusing. Yes, Michael. I just have a comment about what you just said. Yeah. There's no need to speed read the Bible. No, there's, there's not any reason to speed read the Bible. That's exactly right, Mike. So, um, okay. So what we're going to do to 
begin our study of the book of Samuel is we're going to put it in context. And that context is going to begin in the book of Genesis. Because I believe that the way to really begin to grasp what God is doing and who God is and how the Bible works and, and what we should begin in our scriptures to be looking for context, context, context. So we're going to spend a little time connecting the dots, okay? For you veterans, well, you know this, right? You know this, Gary, don't you? You could come back and teach this, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Keep your seat, Gary. <laughs> right? But, but <laughs> yeah, but, but for uh, some of us, it will be a review. For others, you may not have heard this before, but... A way to approach the Bible is to see it as a six-act play. And the first act in that six-act play is straightforward. It is the story of creation in which God makes everything there is and he makes the humans in his image. He get, pronounces it all good. He gives the humans a beautiful garden in which to live and to work and to make a life. They are to eat from the tree of life. There's one thing they shouldn't do, but it's just one thing. It's just one thing. Right? Just that one thing. But um, when the curtain goes down at the end of Act 1, it's all just good, 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 light, 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 light. That's, that, that's how it is. When the curtain rises on Act 2, though, there's a darkness that falls across the story because the humans, sure enough, will do the one thing God told them not to do. They will eat the fateful fruit from the tree. They will rebel against God. They will refuse to be obedient. They will, they will fall to the temptation to be like a God themselves and to know what God knows. And so they eat the fruit, and the consequence of that is many. They're cast out of the garden. Life is going to become hard. Agriculture is going to become hard. Childbirth is going to become hard. They're all just stories to express how difficult things will be. And sure enough, they leave the garden. And sure enough, things go downhill really fast. Best evidenced by the fact that pretty much the first thing that happens is one son, Cain, kills his brother, Abel. Murder. Murder is stalking the earth. And you realize that the consequences of human rebellion against God are many and they are deep. And indeed, they're still with us today. You can pick up any headline, turn on any TV channel, and you will see the evidence for that. You would be blind not to see it, that there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong with us. And all of that is set in Act 2. And, and it becomes so bad that in Genesis 6, God looks down and there's evil everywhere. Eugene Peterson paraphrases as there's evil, evil, evil everywhere. From morning till night, it's all anybody thought about was evil. And so God decides that what he must do is to start over. And he basically starts over with Noah and his family. And the flood comes. And you know that, that story, right? So it's a story of starting over. It's a story at a deeper level of God's commitment to overcoming human the forces of evil, which is carried in the human heart. 
and to redeem humanity and to restore the earth. But that plan doesn't work out because no sooner do Noah and his family leave the, the boat, leave the ark, than it starts falling apart again. His, we get this terrible story about his son, Noah's sons humiliating their father. Next thing you know, they're building the Tower of Babel. They don't want to spread out and be the people God wants them to be. God destroys the Tower of Babel, and you just kind of like wonder, well, what could come? And so after the flood, you come to Act 3. And Act 3 begins very differently. You see, in Genesis 1 to 11, you can't really put a time on anything. There's no markers. There's no customs or things for us to connect with, no language for us to connect with. But when you come to the beginning of Act 3, God comes to a man named Abram. And you are thrust into Abram's world. You are thrust into the world of the ancient Near East in roughly, roughly, 1800 B.C., roughly 4,000 years ago, maybe 2,000 B.C. Anywhere in there is close enough. It will get you an A if you can get that close, okay? And God says to Abram that, Abram, I'm going to make you three promises. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you many descendants, and all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham and his family are the ones whom God has chosen to work this story of redemption, this story of salvation. And it is, as Arthur brought out very well in his sermon on Sunday, it is the story, the story that begins with Abraham that reaches its culmination in one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus, right? That's how Matthew begins his gospel that, that brings that story to its conclusion, to its culmination with the cross and the atonement. And when Jesus says it is finished, indeed, that's, that story is finished. It's not fully consummated. We don't need to get into all that yet, but yes. So for all that interim period between Abraham and all the way forward to Jesus, you have this story of Abraham's family. And that story consumes most of the Old Testament. Everything from Genesis 12 to the end of it is all about the Hebrews or the Israelites, or as they would later be called, the Jews. So just to, just to step through that a little bit, okay? So um, uh, Abraham has made a journey, his family has, from, from the Arrow Shoet, from the land of Sumer, uh, the Sumerians, up to Haran, and, and God calls him and tells him to go southward. There we go, toward the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan right there is occupied. There are people that live there. They're known as the Canaanites, right? There are people that live there. It's not an empty land. It's a good piece of land. It's a good piece of land. It's not, it's not very big. It's kind of narrow. And only, you know, like it's an hour drive to get from the Mediterranean to the great desert that lies on the eastern side of that great piece of land. So it's, it, and it became like a superhighway that these great empires would use to try to reach out to one another because once you leave the land of Canaan and head eastward, it's just barren. There is just not much there. So these are the three promises made to Abram. And you need to, I'm always coming back to Genesis 12, 3. You need to, and you need to focus particularly on the, all the families of the earth. The Jews are chosen, yes. But they're not chosen really for their own sake. 
They're chosen for the sake of humanity. This is God's way. Could there be a different way? I mean, I guess. But this is God's way. God's way is, God is not a God of the magic wand. God is going to work through a lot of weak, troubled people. And we're going to run into that a lot in the stories of Samuel. And you're going to be left scratching your head saying, what, are these the heroes of, your, of our faith? And I'm going to say maybe hero isn't the right way to think about it. Okay? They are the ones God has chosen to work this story of redemption. And David himself is a much flawed man. So the story of Abraham leads into the story of the Exodus in this way, in that you meet Abraham, you meet his son Isaac and Jacob and those stories in Genesis. And at the end of the book of Genesis, the Israelites are living in Egypt because they have fled famine and fled to Egypt. How many of you have you ever seen Joseph and the Magic Technicolor Dreamcoat? Okay, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, that's, that's basically the story of how the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob end up in Egypt. And so at the end of the book of Genesis, they are there. And when the book of, of Exodus opens, they have, been, they have become slaves. It has much time has passed, maybe a couple centuries, maybe more have passed. And the cries of the people rise upward to God. And after a bit, God remembers the Israelites. That's this beautiful Hebrew way of talking about God, that now is the time for God to act. You could say, well, couldn't God act at a different time? I guess I could. But that's when God acts. See, that's what you have to realize about the Bible. It isn't, it isn't that you couldn't imagine there are other ways things could happen or, or other things that could be done. But this is, these are God's choices. The Bible is a revelation of God's self to you. God's revealing himself to you. Now, the most remarkable thing that is that he wants to save us through us. That's the heart of the incarnation. Jesus taking on human flesh and frailty is us being saved, our being saved through us because Jesus is one of us. He's not an alien. God does not, right? He's fully human. Yes, he's fully God, but he's fully human. So that... So, so Moses and the book of Exodus is the story of getting Abraham's family out of Egypt. Because where are they supposed to be? In Canaan. That's the promised land. So they flee. Right? You know, this. how many of you ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? Sure you have. <laughs> Our grandchildren have seen the movie The Prince of Egypt. But there we go. So, <laughs> so they, they flee southward. We don't even know where Mount Sinai really is, but most people will put it down here at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. They flee down there, and when they arrive, it's a big moment. Because God is there. God has led them there, and God's presence, God's is on top of the mountain, and everybody can see the presence of God and the thunder and the lightning and the rest of it. And God proceeds to enter into a covenant with them. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're a distillation of this covenant. 
And it's a covenant that is set forward in the book of Exodus and then more of it in Leviticus and more of it in Numbers and then it's restated in Deuteronomy and the people... Wait, too many slides at one time. Okay, in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is a covenant. It isn't something God simply lays on the people, right? The people say, yes. They don't even just say yes one time. They're asked a second time. Are you ready? You were going to do this. They say yes. They're asked a third time. Are you ready to do this? What do they say? Yes. Wait, what do they say? Okay, that's good. (laughs) And so, you know, and, and let me give you something I learned a long time ago that has just been so helpful to me. That all of this law of Moses, which is what the covenant is, that it, that binds God and the people together. Um, um, things are required of both. God makes commitments to the people. The people make commitments to God. If you took all of that and you put it into a big pot and you began to boil it down, like you might boil something down on your stove at home, what is that called? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I don't even know why I look at you can. Okay, reduction. Yes, like a reduction of something. Yes, reduction. So, um, <laughs> it would reduce down to these Ten Commandments. Think about the way the Ten Commandments are put together. One tablet is about God, keep his name, right? Keep the Sabbath. Don't take any other gods because they live, they live in a world in which there are many gods. They don't think there's only one God. It will be hundreds and hundreds of years before they think there's only one God. God just wants them to acknowledge they've got the best God on the block. The second tablet is about their relationship with others. Right? Don't steal. Don't lie about them. Honor your parents. So then if you, then if you carry it forward a couple of thousand years to Jesus... And Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? He says, ah, it's to love God. And the second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the first tablet, the second tablet. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's, 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 it should shape everything you understand about who God is and who Jesus are and the people we are, we are to be. The second thing that happens at Mount Sinai when the people are gathered around the bottom of the mountain is that God gives them blueprints to build a home for God, a place for God to dwell with them. And that will be called the tabernacle. And I have here a schematic of it, and I hope you can see it if you can't. You may not see it too great from the back, but basically there's an inner tent surrounded by an outer fence and there are important altars and things in the open and then when you go inside the tent there are more important things and it's it it, because it's God's dwelling place there's a table for bread to be put on there's a candlestick a menorah to be for light to be there and in the back of the tent there's there's a curtain and behind it would go this box. Ark, an ark is just a box. Noah's ark is just a box. It's not a ship, it's a box. And the ark of covenant is a box with 
It's built in such a way as to be able to be carried, and in it are going to go the stone tablets and a couple other things, okay? So that's, that's, that's going to be God's dwelling place. And at the book of Exodus, there's this wonderful moment when God's presence comes down and fills the tent to overflowing. Moses can't even go in the tent. It's just filled with the presence of God. That's just remarkable. And these are his people. And they set out then for the promised land. I was always confused about this. Well, maybe I shouldn't say I was confused. I didn't even know enough to be confused for too much of my adult life. I was just wrong. Because what I thought happened was that it took them like forever to get to Mount Sinai. That's not the case. They make a beeline for Mount Sinai. How long could it take them? A few months? And then they make a beeline for the promised land. How long does that take them? I don't know few more months not very long but what happens is when they get to the promised land they decide to send some spies in and check it all out and see what's really going on and the spies come back with the exception of two spies Joshua and Caleb the spies come back and say oh my gosh these people are giants we'll they're just gonna crush us you know oh, we can't do this and so and so the <laughs> yeah I know it's the way I do it so the, anyway yeah and the question for them is a simple one it's the same question for all of us every day of our lives would you trust God right would you trust God will you love people you don't really want to love will you trust God would you care for people you don't really want to care for? Will you trust God? In this case, they don't trust God. They chicken out. And God says to them, well, you're adults. Okay. If that's what you want, fine. You're going to wander around in the wilderness until you're all dead. And then your descendants will enter the promised land. And that's what happens. That's where the 40 years wandering the desert is from. It isn't that they... they they have like poor navigation skills, <laughs> which is kind of how I always thought it worked. They, uh, they just got lost out there. No, they didn't get lost. They went up to the promised land and dang it, they chickened out. They chickened out. And there's a big lesson there. There's a big piece of theology there. If you want to walk away from God, you can. God isn't going to treat you like, a, like, like we might treat a child. You're a reasonably functioning adult. I put the reasonably on because really. You're a reasonably functioning adult. God's going to treat you like an adult. If you want to walk away from God, you can. If you don't want to put your trust in God, you don't have to. If you want to fight God until the end, you can fight God until the end. And in this case, they chickened out and they were then going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a couple of generations, until a new generation was um, ready to put their faith in God and cross over into the promised land. And that's the story told in the book of Joshua. Joshua's an older guy now, but, you know, we older guys can still accomplish a lot. 
right? He's kind of grizzled in this photo, isn't he? The beard, yeah, 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 yeah. So Joshua um, is going to lead the people. I, let me rephrase that. That's not really right. God is going to lead the people. God is the commander of this. Joshua is like his, um, on Star Trek Next Generation, Riker was number two. This is really, I'm just revealing all kinds of things about myself. <laughs> yeah, it's, God is the commander of this. And the way it works in the book of Joshua is that when they do what God tells them to do, then all is good. They win. When they don't do what God tells them to do, guess what happens? They lose. So Joshua leads them on these wars of conquest um, in Canaan because there are people there. Now the thing about these wars of conquest is don't imagine it that they just come sweeping in and wipe the land clean of all the Canaanites and all that. No, it, it's kind of like saying somebody conquered the U.S., but they didn't get around to Los Angeles, New York, or Chicago. It's, so there are still a lot of Canaanites and other peoples that the, that the Hebrews, the Israelites, are living among. Okay? Like a southern border. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like, kind of like, yeah, kind of like, like the area right along there, really. Yeah. So, but they entered the promised land. Another key point that will matter in the book of Samuel is the way that they enter the promised land is they don't come from the south. Instead, they circle around what we call the Dead Sea, and they come in from the eastern side of the Jordan River. So the Jordan River would always have deep symbolism for the Jewish people. It would always be a, a river marking freedom because what's really being marked here, their escape from slavery and some decades pass, but still their escape from slavery and entering the land of Canaan with God as their king. And so it even, if you read the story of the crossing of the, of the Jordan River, it, it, it resembles the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea a bit because it's a big moment. It's what fills the story of John the Baptizer going out to the Jordan River with so much symbolism. He, there were other bodies of water he could have gone to, but they, don't carry, they wouldn't have carried the same symbolic effect that the Jordan River has, and so that's where John the Baptizer goes. Um, so they enter, they, they enter the promised land and they begin to settle. And there are other, there's still Canaanite people in and amongst them all and some of the tribes are bigger and stronger and some of the tribes are smaller and the tribe of Dan will have to migrate to a different place because they can't really, they're not strong enough to keep the land that they have. But it looks something like this. This, this the hodgepodge colors are the colors um, representing the different tribes. This is the pink here, the big one there is that's the tribe of Judah, that's the largest tribe. The little green blotch in the middle is the tribe of Benjamin, which will be greatly shrunk. And the rest of the tribes scattered out, including some on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Okay, so 
I'll step out of the way. You know, I hope that w with the, bu the Bible that you use in here, um, we'll have maps in the back. Because you really need to familiarize yourself with those and use the maps because I've been to Israel now six times. Is that right, Patty? We've been six times. And I know some of you have gone with us. And it makes it, you're grounded and it makes it concrete and you realize these are all actual, actual places like, you know, Grand Prairie or something. You know, I, I guess that's a place. Is that really a place? <laughs> Okay, well, there we go, Susan. It's really a place then, you see? So, so because once you, once you begin to grasp that these are all places, it helps you grasp what? That Christianity, Christianity is not a religion of philosophy. We talk about ideas, and we have theology that we talk about, and gosh, Lauren and I love to get on the phone and talk about that stuff, but... Christianity is a, is a faith built on what God has done, is doing, and shall do. What God has done, is doing, and shall do. How God has stepped into time and space in order to accomplish things. Accomplish the saving of humanity. Accomplish the restoration of the world and the cosmos. So the timelines matter and the people matter and they're connected. I once saw a chart at a, at a conference that had, was trying to illustrate all the different connected story arcs and it kind of filled up. It's kind of one of those animated things and it starts filling up and pretty soon it's, all just, it's almost just black ink. How interconnected all the stories are. So they begin settling into the promised land um, in the conquest, and then you come to the next book in the Bible, which is the book of the Judges. Now, in the book of the Judges, the people are getting settled. That's what I would call it. They're getting settled into the Promised Land. They have lots of issues, okay, as we are inclined to do. And it's a book that tells a very cyclical story. And almost anybody you would read who writes about the book of Judges will bring out the cyclical nature of the book of Judges. And the way it works is simply this, that you take the first generation and they're faithful to God, and then their children are born, and they're a little less faithful to God, and then their children come along, the third generation, and they, they don't even know how to spell God anymore. Right? And so then, when that happens, a f a, 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 an oppressor, uh, an attacker comes. And a hero is raised up. Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Barak, who fights off the conqueror, typically Canaanite people. And the generation comes back to God because they won and God has saved them and they're going to be faithful and then the cycle repeats. The secret is that every time the cycle begins, it never begins where the other one started. So it's a, it's a descending line. Yeah, the little, it's, like, it's like circles. It's a descending line. They never get back to where they were until you finally come 
to the end of the book of Judges, and there is this killer line. So why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Judges, go to the 25th chapter. You will see, indeed, that the book of Ruth, lovely, lovely story, the book of Ruth, just a wonderful story, lies between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And the reason Ruth lies between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel is because the book of Ruth is set during the time of the Judges. Okay? So, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Now, I, you know, for these classes, you know, when I'm reading aloud and stuff, I use the NIV at home for my own personal study and so forth, they use the NRSV, but most everybody has the NIV, so that's what I use. Um, no translation is perfect. No translation is the right translation. They serve different purposes. The translators have different goals, right? So, but the NIV is a good kind of middle-of-the-road translation. So here's the NIV's Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In the NRSV, it goes like this. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Which is what? What would be a classic word expressing everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Anarchy. Right? Anarchy. The fact that it says there Israel had no king is a big moment which we'll be able to get into more because their king is supposed to be God. But they're a mess. They're a mess. And, and the book of Judges ends up on a very, very dark note. And... Um, then the book of Samuel is the next in the narrative line because Ruth is just a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, story about Ruth who is the great-grandmother of King David, which is probably why we have it, um, maybe. Um, but you go from the end of Judges, you've got to connect the end of Judges to the beginning of the book of Samuel. And Samuel is really just one book. It's really just one piece of writing. Um, it's split in two between first and second Samuel and Christian Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible it's not. If you had a Hebrew Bible here, which you could use if you wanted to. I mean like an English translation of the Hebrew Bible. I have one on my desk in English. Okay. Um, it's just the book of Samuel. So that's Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. Same thing for Kings. Kings is the same thing. There's a, there's a book of Kings and there is a book of Chronicles. In our Bibles, we just split them in two. So, um, thoughts, questions? After that little introduction to set the stage for what's coming because the people are in the promised land, the tribes have settled, but it hasn't gone well. It hasn't gone really terribly well at all. Okay. Scott, yes. Do you have any idea how, how much time has taken 
spoke to Abraham. Okay, so if I were doing the timeline, I'm asked about the timeline of things here. So you don't really get good, good time clues until you start getting toward the time of David, okay? And because you're getting enough detail to link it to things that are happening in other kingdoms, and that helps you to see the time frame. I typically will put Abraham at about 1800 B.C. The Exodus, maybe 1300 B.C. Some people will put it about 1500. So maybe 1300 B.C. Um, maybe a couple hundred years for the Joshua and the book of Judges so that by the time we get here, we are at about 1100 or so B.C. Because we know that David, when you, when you look in your study Bibles, it tells you, you know, when David takes the throne, that's, that's the date we can have some, some, some confidence in. Okay? Yes. Well, Moses himself is denied entry. Because the, the, the question is, why is Moses denied entry? Is that the question? Yeah, well, I mean, he's a strong leader. He, would, the, he was disobedient to God. That's it. Yes, he, God told him what to do, and Moses thought he knew better. Uh, and that incident, which seems small to us, right? If I teach that story, it seems small to us. Come on. We all make mistakes. See, but... But the, those, all those things matter. They all matter. And I think in that way, Moses' disobedience is really almost a model of, an archetype of, the disobedience of the Israelites. Because that will be the driving story through the entire Old Testament, is the disobedience of the Israelites, their faithlessness. Their faithlessness. Because if the Israelites proved to be a faithful people, you wouldn't need Jesus, really, the way I think the story works, but they don't because they're us. They prove to be faithless. So God has to become one of us. God has to become, Jesus becomes that faithful Jew in all things, the one who was able to keep the covenant in all ways. The Old Testament is a largely a story of tragedy, as is really at the end, I think, the story of Moses. He sees the promised land because he goes up on Mount Nebo on the eastern side and he can see the promised land, but he does not enter it. And the story of his death is told at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And then in the book of Joshua, which follows the book of Deuteronomy, they cross over and go into the promised land and begin with the conquering of Jericho. Anything else? There were never any Jews. There were a people. I mean, Abraham had a family. Did I just lose my mic? A Abraham had a family. He had fathers and mothers. And some of that is given to us in the Bible. But I keep losing my mic, I think. Am I not? No? You got me? 
Okay, so let's, let's trace, trace the names for a minute to, in a, to answer that question. God comes to Abraham, and it's going to be Abraham's family. And that's simply it. Abraham's family. Okay? When you move forward in the story through Isaac and Jacob, there's a story in Genesis, like maybe Genesis 26 or so, something around there, where Jacob wrestles with God at the river. And the result of that is that Jacob is given a new name by God. And that name is Isra, I-S-R-A-L, wrestles with God, struggles with God, because E-L simply is the word for God, Israel. And that name, Israel, Israel, is not only Jacob's name, it becomes the name of the people, okay? When they are enslaved in Egypt, they pick up this name called the Hebrews. Some think it goes to a word named Hapiru, which means dusty people, right? <laughs> but it's not as theologically relevant a name as the Israelites, and they will be known as the Israelites all the way through all the books we're going to be looking at here and going forward. Now, among the tribes of Israel, of which there are 12, I won't get it up, it's more complicated, but one is called Judah because Judah was the fourth son of um, Abraham and his tribe will become the biggest and strongest tribe. So when the Assyrians in 722 BC arrive on the scene, they wipe out the 10 northern tribes, in essence leaving only the tribe of Judah because the tribe of Benjamin is so inconsequential. That's 700 years before Jesus, the tribe of Judah. And from Judah, what do you get? Jews. Judea is the name given to the Roman province, derived from the name Judah. And it's why the Romans, when they finally got disgusted with the Jews in the second century AD, they changed the name. They got rid of the name Judea in the geography books. And they just used the name Palestina because they didn't want any more. They just want to get rid of it all. It had been such a headache to them for so long. But, but that's where that's so... The way to think about it is it's all Abraham's family. And one of the sadnesses we will encounter in the book of Samuel is that this family has, has a bunch of internal strife, civil wars, basically. And they're all part of the descendants of Abraham. They're all cousins of some form in some form or fashion. You know, we Americans have a trouble connecting with this because that's not how America is put together. We come from all over the world, right? Um, and we try to get along and we have customs and laws and sometimes we look askance at what other people do and that's, that's weird and all that kind of stuff. I can remember in the not too distant past, somebody had done a happiness survey by country and the, at the top of the list was Denmark. 
So the interviewer went to Denmark and he started talking with people and about, well, why are they so happy? Why aren't they burdened with this same, you know, strife and struggle that, you know, America seems to be and all that kind of thing? And the guy says, well, you know, we're all cousins up here. We're all part of the same family. So, yeah, that's how we see it. It changes how we see everything. It changes how we see the social programs. and all. We're all cousins. You know, that guy, that guy walking down the street there, we're related. We're, we're blood relations going back far enough in time. So that's, that, that's what you see here in the fam. What? That's scary. Yeah. So, that, so that, that's the same way with the, the family of Abraham. One of the, one of the things that um, Paul does in Romans is he takes his fellow Jews to task because they become very focused on the fact that they are the ones who have the blood of Abraham on, in their veins. And he goes, it's never been about that. It's always been about faith. Go back and read Genesis 15. It's always been about faith. You know, there's Gentiles out there who do a better job of keeping the law, and they don't even know what the law is. And so this ethnic privilege that many of the Jews of Jesus' day was claiming was something that Paul fought against because it was... It was counterproductive to, that fell, it, it blinded them to seeing what? That they were the ones through whom God was going to save humanity. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, God told Abraham. And everything else is the outworking of that. So when Jesus sends his disciples out, what does he say to them? Be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts, what did he say to them in Matthew? Go make disciples of all nations. Some of you were with me when we did Isaiah, the book of Isaiah on Monday. Online only, that was a trip. And um, is my water going? Is it heading over the table? It's going. It's going. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it's astonishing. I found it astonishing in the book of Isaiah how many times the references to all nations, all, 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 all. The project is not about the Jews. It's not about the chosen people. They are chosen not for themselves, but for the sake of humanity. They're merely the ones through whom God is going to redeem the world in the person of Jesus as it comes, comes to be. Okay? They're not, no, the Canaanites are not part of Abraham's family. But they're still part of the Adam and Eve family. They're part of what? The Adam and Eve family. Yes. They're all made in the image of God. Okay, here's another. <laughs> we may get to 1 Samuel today. I don't know, but it's okay. <laughs> okay, so, but all of this is helpful. All of this is helpful. So you read your Bible well. All humans are made in the image of God. The Bible addresses a great deal to the family of God or the children of God. That is Abraham's family, or, and then later those who put their faith in Jesus. It isn't humanity writ large, but all of humanity is made in the image of God. All of humanity is included in the phrase, 
all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That does incorporate the Canaanites. You see? But somehow God has to move this thing forward because humans make the, the world the world that we're talking about here in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, it's really a world much closer to the world of, Bar- of Conan the Barbarian. Really, it, it is, you know. I mean, even go to Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, people went to arenas to watch other people get killed eaten by animals, slaughtered by tigers, slaughtered by other humans. Can you imagine such a thing? I can't imagine such a thing, but that's how it was. So, and, but God was determined to rescue humanity through, to rescue us through ourselves. And that includes the Canaanites. And that includes the people, that includes the people in China and that none of this, they don't even know any, these folks don't even know any of that exists. Right? Okay, anything else? Uh, yes? I got lost in the sixth um, act. I'm sorry, yes. Let me re- go through the sixth act real quickly because I did stop at act three. Okay, well, you're just ahead of me then, Sharon. No. It will all fall into place for you here very quickly. So act one is creation. Mm-hmm. Act two is the story of the fall, right? Presents the problem. Act three is the story of Abraham and Israel, right? Okay. It's the rescue project, which in the end, Sharon, is tragic. So act four is the story of Jesus. Act five, then, is the story of the church. That's the story. That's the act we're still in. That, that act is still ongoing. You and I sitting here right here today, we're part of that act five. And act six will be when Jesus returns and the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth and so forth. One, two, three, four, five, six. What? We have, haven't we? I bought a book called Restart. And in my Restart, in, in my restart book, would you get copies of it? invite resources <laughs> the first third of the book is about the six-act play I didn't create the six-act play N.T. Wright created a five-act play then some other dudes made it into a six-act play which made more sense to me and so and I've been using it ever since because it helps me keep focused on the story of how God has worked is working and will work in this world that's the thing. You got, you know, a lot. Of, I remember year, the, the phrase connecting the dots. You know where that came from? That came, how many of you know Ronnie Ferris from here in the church? He's still around a little bit. I see him around once in a while. He's had big health problems. Ronnie was an usher for years and years. Ronnie came up to me one day and he said, You know, Scott, I like your sermons because my whole life, I would hear all these sermons and they were never connected. But you know what? You connect the dots for me. I said, oh, that's a phrase I like, yeah. right? Because you've got to connect the dots. You need to, you, you need to see the connections because they're, they're all there. And the writer, they're not, 
we're not imposing them on Scripture. The writers use them. Paul's writings are filled with Old Testament references and echoes and allusions. It's, it's all there. It's how the story is told, how God reveals himself to us. So when we, let's see, where are we now? Oops, I messed all this away. Let me back up. Where am I? What did I do? I, I kept brushing against my own iPad here. Okay, so the book of Samuel begins here. This is a place called Shiloh. You and I would pronounce it Shiloh. If you go to Israel, they'll call it Shiloh. Okay, but that's where it is. And it's a, it is where the tabernacle has been for several hundred years, all the way through this period. The tabernacle brought out of Egypt has been at Shiloh, Shiloh, okay? And it's a perfect place because it's on, there's a, there's a, I'm hesitant to call it a mountain ridge, you know, but by Israel, by Israel standards, it's a mountain ridge <laughs> that runs down the center of the country, okay? And it's being right here, it's kind of in the middle and kind of accessible to where all the tribes are, okay? And indeed today, you can visit, as we have at least a couple of times when we've gone to Israel, the ruins at Shiloh. So here's a little aerial. It just shows you some of this is Shiloh down here. It's kind of in a valley with the hills, with the hills around it. Okay. Um, of course, the ruins are very, very old, at least 3,000 years old. Hence, you get this. I don't know what Plano will look like in 3,000 years, but I doubt it looks this good. So there are, there are ruins that have been uncovered there, and the emphasis on the site is on the tabernacle. Um, and they have a presentation of the story of Hannah, which you will hear in 1 Samuel, and um, a holographic presentation of, of the tabernacle. But so that makes Shiloh, where the book of Samuel opens, the center of worship for the 12 tribes, right? Because the tabernacle is God's dwelling place. It's God's dwelling place. So right off, you start to understand that the tabernacle, which is then turned into the temple, same idea, permanently in Jerusalem, is God's dwelling place, and it's the center of the whole Jewish religion. And it will be for a thousand years after this, until the Romans destroy it, about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But right now, there's a, this tent um, set up in Shiloh, and that's where the book is going to open. So here's another picture of just some of the surrounding hillsides. And then I found this this reconstruction of, of Shiloh, which is, I thought was not bad. For one thing, it shows you that it has walls. Every city of any significance has to have walls. Why does it have to have walls? Because they live in the time of Conan the Barbarian, and you need to keep bad people out. 
And you need a place for people who are living outside the walls to come running inside for protection. So there's a wall, there's towns, there's a tabernacle. Notice how, if you can see the painting well enough, it's sort of a tent. That, that, um, it's fabric makes up the uh, fencing, and then there's the tent in the middle. This is a mock-up of the tabernacle that somebody at some time in the past erected in the desert of Israel. Same idea. Fence demarcating the tabernacle altar and stuff in the open and then the, then the tent of tabernacle meeting right there in its place. So that's where the book of Samuel opens. Okay. So, questions? <coughs> then let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. We'll do a few verses at least. I can't have people go leaving here saying, you know, we went to that Bible study, we didn't even do one verse today. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, Ephraim. Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes. Now, I need to explain that, because if you go back and you look at the names of Jacob's sons, you will not find the name Ephraim. And if you look at the 12 tribes that are settled in the land, you won't find one called Joseph. But we've all seen the musical, so we know that Joseph is one of Jacob's sons, and there should be a tribe of Joseph. But there's not a tribe of Joseph, because what happens is, in Egypt, Joseph marries an Egyptian woman, Joseph has two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And they both get allotments of land from God in the promised land. And um, they are the reason that you have 12 tribes because one of the tribes, the tribe of Levite, does not get an allotment of land. They are to be supported. They're the tribe of priests and they are to be supported. So if you work through all of the complicated math, you end up with 12 tribes, of which two are called Manasseh and Ephraim. So this fellow is from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tobu, the son of Zuf, an, Ephra, an Ephraimite. Gosh, I love those names, huh? So, you know, why do we get all that, like, it's his father, and it's grandfather, and it's great-grandfather, the great-grandfather's father, and the great-grandfather's The reason is because, for the Jews, it grounded all of this in reality. This is not some made-up guy. This is not the figment of somebody's imagination. He had a father, and he had a grandfather, and a great-grandfather, and a great-great-grandfather. And here is who they are. And so right off the bat, you're, 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 this is, it. the Jews really, really liked genealogies. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. They told a story. They reminded everybody of their past and their history. Now, verse 2. Now, this dude, Elkanah, he had two wives, okay? He had two wives. This is the time when 
plural marriage was practiced. And there were even laws and customs around men taking additional wives. If a, a, if a brother, if a man's brother, if a man died, his brother was to take that man's wife as the brother's wife. Why? Because it is the time of Conan the Barbarian. And women, you know, men are stronger and faster and so women needed protection. And so this was the way it was done. That will pass. By the time you get to Jesus and even the centuries leading up to Jesus, they don't practice plural marriage anymore. The need has... The world has changed. The need has gone away. But at this time, yes, they practiced plural marriage and, um, and it made sure that everybody was, had a home. In, if you read the Law of Moses in Exodus and the rest of it, one of the, you'll see a lot of concern is about the most marginalized groups, the widows and orphans. They are the most marginalized groups in ancient Near East society because they don't have a family to be part of. And so they needed to be cared for and needed to be taken in. There's a great story in Acts chapter 9 when Peter, uh, Peter comes to the bedside of Tabitha and God raises her from the dead and great to the widow's relief because she is the one who's been caring for the widows. And they're concerned about what's going to happen to them now when Tabitha passes. So here, Elkanah has two wives. Not an unusual thing. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. One of the sadnesses of the ancient world is that a childless woman carried a great deal of shame with her. In the view of the cultures, it was her problem. And because it was her problem, it was usually seen as something that she must have done against God or the gods, if you were, you know, however you saw that, to, to have this childlessness placed upon her. There's in the Bible a motif of childless women. The first one you meet is Abram's wife, Sarah, right? She's really old. Now, on top of it, they're really old. In the New Testament, Luke opens his gospel with the story of another childless woman. You know what her name is? Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are really old. Now, I, that's... Nothing is said about that here, but she has no children. Hannah. Year after year, this man, that would be Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty, to Yahweh Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now you, I have some new people here. The Lord you can see is printed in those funky small caps. Every time that occurs in your Old Testament, what you have in the Hebrew there is the name of God. 
the name of God, which is sort of Y-H-W-H, sort of Yahweh. It was a name that was so sacred to the Jews they would not pronounce it. And every time they would read this paragraph, for example, and they came upon Yahweh, they would say instead Adonai, which simply means Lord. And so English Bibles forever, I guess, have maybe going back, maybe Jerome did it with the Vulgate. I'm not sure about that, but probably used, put the word Lord in there and typeset it differently to clue you into something going on, which you find in the translator's notes. But it's actually the name of God there to, to Yahweh Almighty. And in the Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh Shaddai, because Shaddai means Almighty in Hebrew. He would go up to sacrifice to Yahweh Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. Sure he did. It's his job. He's supposed to be the provider. He feeds them. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And Yahweh had closed her womb. You see, for ancient people, this is, not just, this is not just the Israelites. These are all ancient people. For all ancient people who have very little in the way of explanation, actually, for what happens around them every day, God or the gods are the first cause of all things that happen. Why, does, why is it raining today? Well, the gods are making it rain. Why, why is the wind blowing from the west today? The God of the winds making a blow from the west today. Why is it blowing from the east tomorrow? Because the God, you, know, you see, it's, it's like that about everything. So her childlessness is seen as something that God has, has given her. Right? We, have other, we do have other explanations for things now. Okay? We, we've learned a lot about God's glorious cosmos and, and the glories of God's creation. But put yourself in her place. Her husband loves her. He gives her a double portion because he loves her so, and he feels badly for her. Don't you think that's what it's conveying? That he feels badly for her? Because Yahweh had closed her womb. Verse 6, because Yahweh had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, who's that? The other wife. The one who has all the kids. I got kids. You don't have any kids, right? I got kids. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Nowadays, my kids would not say irritate her. They would say annoy her. Is that that? Because uh, it's they just use that word all the time. Anyway, verse six because. Yahweh had closed Hannah's womb. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on how long? Year after year. Wow. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of Yahweh, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? 
Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? See, this is what I mean about the book of Samuel. The whole book is written this way. The whole book is filled with exciting moments and poignant moments. They're very real moments. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. There at the tabernacle. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to Yahweh. Ah, you see? She's anguished. She's sorrowful. She hurts. She understands what she should do in that case. She takes her anguish and her sorrow to God. She's going to pray to God. You know, I think we live in a world which gives us long lists of all the places that we might go with our anguish and our sorrow. For too many people, prayer isn't really on that list anywhere. Not taking it to God. But Hannah knows. In her deep anguish, verse 10, Hannah prayed to Yahweh, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. That's that action word, really, for the Hebrew. If you will, if you will hear my word, if you remember me, if you, will, if, if you will act for me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him, I will give this son to Yahweh, to you, Yahweh, for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. That razor business is being raised as a Nazarite, which Samson was. It was um, uh, not cutting your hair was a part of the vow that Nazarites would take before God when they were dedicating themselves to God's service. And it would do what? It would set them apart from others. I, I don't personally don't think it's much more complicated than that. Okay, so I think we're going to leave it right there with Hannah's prayer. And when we come back next week, we'll pick up right there because Eli is going to come to her. The priest is. Yep. And, and the story will really begin of Hannah's, um, of God's response to Hannah and the story of young Samuel, the prophet. So anyway, I'm glad all of y'all came today. I had a lot of fun today. Yep. Um, you know, it was good. So we'll, we'll pick up there next week. Do you have anything today that you need to add, Patty? Okay. Then I'm going to close this in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, like Hannah, there are a lot of times in our lives when our hearts are filled with anguish and sorrow, when we grieve. May you be the one that we come to first. May we come to you with open hearts, knowing that you actually do hear us. And you will actually help.
For we know that you love us. We know that's just not mere sentiment. But that indeed it's real and it's true. And help us to love you, Lord, as we should. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.